Welcome to Korean True Crime with me, your host, Mimi Mizigo. Today's episode covers medical malpractice, hiding behind the walls of hospitals that once catered to patients suffering from mental ailments. Once their doors closed for good, their buildings decayed into vessels for ghosts and curses. So what makes these asylums so scary? Is it the ghosts that we fear or the real abuse that once took place behind their closed doors? Thank you to Vix Mack, Lala, Jay Colomo, Ben Jones, Ashley Rigby, William White, Sue VB Van Bremen, Blanca Blanca, Jiwon Edwards, and Selkie for their support on Patreon. Thank you for voting on today's episode topic. If you'd like to join my patrons, you'll receive ad-free early access episodes, weekly Korean true crime vocabulary hinting at the content of the next episode, exclusive access to vote on future episode topics, and the occasional bonus content. There's actually some bonus content for today's episode in particular. We're going to be learning about criminal cases related to ghost doctors in Korea. There are no tiers, so all patrons gain access to everything. If you'd like to support me with your love, find me on all social media sites at Korean True Crime. Video podcasts are available later on YouTube, and show notes are available for free on Patreon. If you are a veteran listener to the show, then you know that I like to set up a little bit of history for my cases. So buckle up before we arrive at our haunted destination. The origin of psychiatry in Korea began in the early 20th century when Joseong Cheongdeokbu Hospital was opened under Japanese colonial government in 1911. Like many nations, mental illness was only recently being understood, but other nations had been treating it for much longer. In contrast, the first psychiatric hospital in recorded history is Bethlehem Royal Hospital outside of London in 1330, half a millennium earlier. However, for most of the world, mental illness was often criminalized, ostracizing for the afflicted, and treatment was often painful or counterproductive. Prior to the opening of Joseon Jandakbu Hospital, people experiencing mental illness were approached with traditional oriental medicine remedies. Mind and body were one in this belief system for much of history, so if the mind was sick, then the body would also be sick. Most oriental medicine was created with abundant resources so it could be easily sourced, making it affordable. Emotions were thought to have been produced by specific organs in the body, such as happiness in your heart or sadness in your lungs. So if a person's body was sick, then their emotions, nutrition, and blood circulation all must be sick as well. Acupuncture, cupping, bloodletting, and heat and ice were all used to help treat these ailments. These methods are still used alongside traditional herbal remedies, many of which are based in science and others in spiritualism as we develop an ever-evolving understanding of mental health with psychiatry and therapy. Mental health symptoms that have manifested in physical behavior deemed abnormal have pretty much always led to abandonment and ostracization, especially in the early 20th century. There was an incredible stigma towards people who exhibited various abnormal behavioral problems that didn't go away after a visit to internal medicine, obstetrics, or a gynecologist. 
Keep in your mind that the government and education programs are entirely controlled by Japan during this time. So treatment was mainly reserved for Japanese people living in Korea. For anyone to be hospitalized in Joseon Chungtokbu Hospital, patients needed to be Japanese and exhibit negative behavior that was habitual, like stealing, violence, fraud, arson, or sexual deviancy. People were also sent to this hospital for psychiatric complications of physical ailments like syphilis, which can cause mania, psychosis, or dementia. The hospital, however, could only accommodate about 35 patients, so not very many. But four decades earlier, Japan had opened their first mental health facility in 1869, and they had a very prominent Western influence when it came to healthcare. So five years after opening their doors, this psychiatric hospital was offering occupational therapy, outdoor therapy, hypnotherapy, and hot bath therapy. It sounded like a wonderful place to be. Some of their treatments included working on a farm that the hospital owned, taking walks on nearby mountain trails, simple outside exercise, and wind and sun bathing with meditation. These methods, however, weren't actually Japanese. Like I mentioned, they had learned these methods from abroad, and they had been spearheaded by a program in Germany. Japan and Japan-occupied Korea were praised for their humane philosophies towards the mentally ill, which in part, I think, is them being praised for becoming more Western, because that's very surprising, especially if you're someone who lives in or has learned about the modern culture of Japan or Korea. Both of these countries are having huge issues with improving mental health for a wide plethora of their people. However, in the beginning of this hospital's foundation, the only patients allowed were Japanese people residing in Korea as a tool for the expansion of Japan colonialism. We aren't going to go through all of the history of mental health hospitals in Korea because most of it is irrelevant to today's topic. Since then, after the end of World War II, Korea heavily adopted an American form of psychiatry, which was simply Freud's psychoanalytic theory. Although we now consider Freud to be mostly out of favor in the field of psychology, he is credited with most of his ideas being influential to the new theories that we have today about the mind. South Korea then underwent a very drastic and sudden modernization for their entire medical system, for the entire country. By the mid-20th century, their psychology and psychiatry theories had far surpassed their stagnant government's healthcare policies. There were no mental health policies in place, and culturally, chronic mental and physical illness became a private issue meant to be dealt with by the families without aid. It was seen as shameful to your family or embarrassing to have someone with mental or physical illness. As Korea industrialized in the 1970s, people needed to move out of the rural areas to find jobs, which led to the opening of many mental health asylums. We don't refer to psychiatric hospitals anymore as asylums because, frankly, they aren't asylums. An asylum is a sanctuary or a retreat for someone, and these facilities were not built with something like that in mind. These facilities were similar to a nursing home, but for family members with chronic mental illness. Some patients were discarded there by their families, but others truly did want their loved ones to get the help they needed. Nicer, more expensive facilities took very good care of their patients, but as the demand grew for facilities catering to middle and lower class families, quality of care was sometimes sacrificed. These facilities were exposed by the Korean broadcasting system in an episode of the television series 60 Minutes, which presents informative documentaries that sometimes are investigatory in nature. This episode aired in 1986 and was titled The Inside Story of Psychiatric Surgery. 
and the episode included a walkthrough of an unnamed facility. The conditions and treatment of the patients was so abhorrent that it led to the creation of the mental health law, which funded legitimate asylum-type facilities. People criticized that the government did know that the conditions inside these facilities were horrible, but the government simply didn't care until they were forced to confront the problem. I mean it when I say I tried so hard to find a recording of this episode. I had many people helping me and none of us could find it. I wanted to find even descriptions of the facilities, but Korea was still a developing nation at this time and much of the media in the 80s is lost to time, probably archived in a storage room somewhere. It's also possible that the government didn't want this stain on their reputation of not caring for the vulnerable and they could have had it removed from television. But the reality of mental health facilities in the early to late 1980s is that there was a drastic rise in patients suffering from PTSD following the Gwangju Uprising, a political demonstration by Chunnam University students protesting against a martial law government. Gwangju citizens armed themselves against the martial government and were beaten, shot, killed, or sexually assaulted by government soldiers. As in most government-led shameful historical events, the number of lives lost is vastly different depending on the source. The government claims 170 people died, but Guangzhou historians report it was more likely close to 2,000, also including people who ended up taking their own lives following the uprising. The surviving victims of this massacre would suffer from PTSD that drove them to get help at these praised mental health facilities across the nation. As would be exposed in the late 1980s, the treatment was subpar, the conditions were filthy, and often they experienced abuse from doctors and workers. In other facilities, patients reported being restrained with handcuffs or restrictive garments and placed in solitude for over 120 hours. Many patients died during this kind of solitude therapy. Families were told that their loved ones had passed away from refusing medication, refusing to eat, or other lies that blamed the patient. It was difficult for families to even fight these hospitals because patients' access to the outside world was heavily restricted. Patients could call their families, but that right was controlled based on their behavior, which meant that healthcare workers were deciding whether or not they could contact their family. Within the walls of these hospitals that were meant to accommodate only dozens of patients in each ward, hundreds of patients were cramped into them. Patients often had to share rooms with many others similar to a prison cell. A worker at one of these facilities who remained anonymous in an interview with the Korean Human Rights Commission said that the hospital was reminiscent of a prisoner of war camp, that it put the word hospital to shame. This treatment didn't end in 1986 when the exposing documentary aired, and it didn't end when the almost worthless mental health law was passed. This brings us to the most infamous psychiatric facility in all of Korea. Gondiam Namyang Junshin Byonwon, or Gondiam Namyang Psychiatric Hospital. This was a neuropsychiatric hospital in the rural mountains of Gwangju. Gwangju has a lot of tragic and traumatic history, which gives people an inclination to want dark tourist content from the most feared places in the area. Dark tourism is an important part of historical preservation that allows countries to educate local and foreign tourists about the history and to encourage the betterment of their future. Gondam, however, was closer to a haunted house than it was to a historical building. 
Gonjam Namyang Psychiatric Hospital is often referred to as only Gonjam, but the hospital itself is just named after Gonjan Up, which is the name of the city center area that is divided into neighborhoods. It doesn't have any translated meaning or significance. It's similar to naming a hospital like Manhattan Hospital. You may have heard about this building as the most haunted place in Korea or one of the world's most terrifying buildings. It opened in 1961 and operated until it closed its doors in 1996. Gonjam Namyang Psychiatric Hospital as a haunted location, however, was popularized by the 2016 horror film of the same name, Gonjam, directed by Jung Bum Shik, which had international success as a found footage horror film. The film follows internet horror reporters exposing the dark halls of the hospital. However, the film itself was not produced at the actual hospital, but instead in Busan at a high school with a similar floor plan. The actual Gundam hospital was dilapidated, which made it too dangerous to film in, and the building's owner was very strict about trespassing. Of course, I won't spoil the ending of the movie for you, but the premise of the film is about a horror YouTuber filming at the hospital with his film crew. While exploring the hospital, the group talks about what they'd read about Gondiam Hospital's history. There are stories of patients and doctors going mad, paranormal occurrences, and even rumors of witchcraft. Then, in a horrific mass suicide, 42 patients went mad and killed themselves. The director of the facility disappeared suspiciously following all of those deaths. Various paranormal events occur as the group discovers ties to necromancy, witchcraft, and medical abuse. The movie actually is very well done and has great suspense and atmosphere, so if you're a horror fan, check it out. It's widely available with subtitles. It creeped me out and is really effective storytelling for a very low-budget horror film. Back in the real world, locals in the area of the real hospital feared the hospital, and they told stories of waking late at night to hear the echoes of screams coming from the hospital. Curses and hauntings are still very real fears in Korea. People often even refuse to buy used furniture because they believe evil energy or curses can latch onto furniture, and if you bring that into your home, you're going to receive that energy or curse. People had learned that shortly before the mental hospital closed, the director had committed suicide and that the building owner fled to never be heard from again. The mystery surrounding the decaying building made the heavy iron gate seem even more intimidating. A sign at the entrance of the building ominously read goodbye, with the letters rusting away. People said that the doctors or the director of the facility had kept patients against their will in horrible living conditions as prisoners, unable to leave or even contact their families. As time went on, people started to notice a lot of mysterious deaths of the patients at the facility, and there was a high rotation of staff members going missing. A wide variety of tales were told of doctors abusing and killing patients or of the director killing patients and nurses. Since closing, shamans and psychics have visited the building hoping to dispel any curses, lingering spirits, or other paranormal entities, but nothing could be done about just how creepy this building looked. No matter how safe from ghosts I would be in this building, the walls are chipping paint, the ceiling is coming down with insulation everywhere, files and folders are discarded everywhere with disintegrating mattresses still in the rooms. This, alongside photos of alleged ghosts, stories of patients dying at the hospital, patients killing nurses, nurses going mad and killing patients, all while walking over broken glass and seeing yellowing paint fall off the walls, would give anyone the chills. But none of it was true. 
Perhaps there are ghosts, although I would not say I'm a believer. It was a place for suffering people to get treatment, and many people believe that places with great emotional trauma can harbor lingering spirits. We can say, however, that the murders and death stories are all untrue. The director did not end his own life. He died a natural death due to old age, and the facility was left to his family. But after the aging building became too expensive to repair due to problems with the sewage system, the director's two sons decided to close the hospital, and one of them did move to America. Neither of the owner's sons were interested in running the hospital, and more than likely, it wasn't financially doing well. The hospital barely had any photos of its operation because really nothing remarkable happened there. They treated people with mental illness, not demonic spirits or witches. A person who visited the building before it was ultimately demolished in 2017 was able to purchase a set of folders left behind in a nurse's desk. There were dozens of large sheets of drawing paper with pencil sketches of parts of the building, doctors, patients, and even a happy woman holding her baby. All of the drawings are dated between 1995 and 1996, the final year of its operation, and are relatively preserved with minor smudging and aging. The photos show an entirely different story about the hospital before its closing. It shows a brightly lit hospital with smiling nurses, doctors, and patients. It shows mundane bulletin boards and gardeners raking autumn leaves. It shows patients playing go in the lobby and visitors playing basketball with family members on the roof. In reality, of the hospitals that closed due to maltreatment of patients, Gonziam was not one of them. It is simply a decaying husk of an abandoned building that became the vessel of ghost stories and curses so that local teens could have somewhere to scare each other. Through old blogs and forum posts, we can see that almost all of the damage to the building was done by vandals coming to spray paint the walls, break old clocks, or throw rocks through the windows. For a decade from 1997 to 2007, the building was relatively untouched, except for local kids. But when a blogger posted ghost stories alongside the building's address, it became much more popular for people wanting to see the allegedly haunted hospital. It became a nuisance for locals who would hear the loud visitors late at night or deal with the discarded trash on the side of the road. It also scared some of them as they thought that the screams and sounds were ghosts at the hospital. The hospital itself is relatively remote up in the woods, but the locals clearly wanted their peace and clean forest paths back. The area is gorgeous, especially when the cherry blossoms are blooming, so the residents really wanted to preserve that kind of beauty. Neighbors feared that their property would also depreciate or be damaged as well, and their fears aren't unfounded. The broken windows theory, a sociological theory, states that if a building with broken windows is left unattended or unrepaired for long enough, soon the buildings nearby will also have windows broken. This theory has been observed in both wealthy and impoverished neighborhoods and demonstrates that if one house tolerates vandalism, then there's an opportunity for more crime in the area to be tolerated. So it's in their best interest to get the building fixed or at least forgotten about. Then, the movie's release in 2016 only made things worse for the building's condition and the neighborhood. Neighbors complained to the building's owner, the previous director's son, who had moved to America with his family. CCTV was installed and police occasionally patrolled the area, knowing teens may be out in the woods at night. No trespassing signs were erected around the building and the doors were padlocked shut. 
But the building owner had other issues with the film. The production team of the Gunja movie did not contact or ask permission from the building owner before creating the movie. This brought unnecessary liability because people were going to the building late at night. If someone was injured while exploring the building, it could be a costly lawsuit. Despite the filming not taking place at the hospital, the owner was not aware of this at the time and tried to charge the director with trespassing. In the end, a lawsuit may or may not have happened for defamation. So far, it hasn't been revealed to the public, so it may have been settled privately with just a cash payout and an apology. But since the repairs to the building wouldn't have been worth the cost, ultimately they decided to demolish the building in 2017 and sell the land. Since then, a coupon center, a company similar to Amazon, has been built on the land. The ending to Gunjam's story felt a little unsatisfactory for me, especially since I'm not one to fluff my episodes with rumors of ghost stories. I really try to stick to true crime and true crime cases. So I felt like since that story was a little lackluster, I wanted to add something a little extra for my listeners, and I couldn't just end the episode here. So as a little bonus, we have not one, but two more true crime stories of murder and medical malpractice today. First, a short story of a patient attacking a doctor, and then a real story of a medical malpractice facility like the one in Gunjam's story. So stick around to hear them both. In December of 2018, a man in his 30s that we can refer to by the pseudonym Yijun walked into Gangbuk Samsung Hospital in Seoul. It was around 5 p.m. that he came into the hospital and asked to receive an application form to admit himself into their program for psychiatric care. It's a pretty easy process, so he sits down with the paperwork and fills it out silently. The nurse learns that he wants to get care for his bipolar disorder, which is great for him to take care of himself. Getting help for mental illness is difficult, and it shouldn't be. When he turns in the paperwork, the nurse tells Yijin to wait a little bit and the doctor will give him mental health counseling to determine a treatment plan together. Dr. Im Sewan was in charge of the psychiatry department and would conduct the new patient meeting. He had to wait a little while, but finally was led to the doctor's office to meet Dr. Im. He said that the man seemed distracted or stressed, which I wouldn't imagine is particularly unusual for a mental health department, but the doctor recalled that Yijin was acting suspiciously and when entering the doctor's office, he paced in front of the door. Suddenly, after speaking for a while, he locked the door. Before Dr. Im could get an answer out of Yijun about what was going on, he pulled a 33-centimeter knife out of his clothes and threatened the doctor. As far as we know, he didn't make any demands or ask any questions, but seemed to be suffering from delusions. Dr. Im pushed Yijun aside, opened the door, and shouted to the nurses to run. As he warned the staff to flee, he was stabbed several times trying to escape. The doctor had been stabbed multiple times in the chest, but continued to run for about 40 meters before collapsing on the floor. Security was able to restrain Ijin without any more injuries until the police arrived. Dr. M was rushed to the emergency department and underwent a resuscitative thoracotomy. A resuscitative thoracotomy is a last resort procedure in which doctors need to gain access to the heart quickly by cutting under the left breast and opening the ribs to be able to access the heart and fix any trauma that was done to the heart. Sometimes it's called cracking open the chest. Dr. M suffered multiple stab wounds that hit his heart, lungs, and other organs. He didn't survive the surgery, however, and died due to a ruptured aorta as his right ventricle and aorta were fatally damaged. Everyone was in shock as to why this happened, and as you can imagine, the public suddenly became very afraid of people with bipolar disorder and other personality disorders that are generally already misunderstood. 
I will never demonize mental illness on this channel, but we can understand it as a contributing factor to what happened. Ejin, the murderer, had suffered from symptoms of mental illness since he was a young child, and because of such, grew up experiencing school bullying and violence. He didn't receive proper care for his mental illness, and he had a difficult time adjusting to school and work. When he was older, he finally was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, also known as manic depression. At the day of the incident, Ejin had been suffering from delusions, which can be a symptom of bipolar disorder for some people. In his interrogation, Ejin believed that someone had cut open his head and planted a bomb inside. Presumably, his delusions told him that Dr. M had done this, or that Dr. M could help him remove it. We don't know what Dr. M said in private with Ejin, but Ejin may have asked Dr. Lim to remove the bomb before Ejin attacked him. He was sentenced the next year in 2019 to 25 years in prison for the murder of Dr. M. The hospital and doctor in this instance did exactly as they should have. They treated the patient kindly and spoke to him in private about his concerns. The doctor did not treat the patient differently because of his described odd behavior. This case is exceptionally unfortunate and thankfully rare. But what about the hospitals that don't treat people as they should? Earlier, you heard about the television expose from the late 1980s. The next case is a hospital that should be featured in that miniseries, but however, went unnoticed until well into the late 2000s. In 1958, the Daegu City Hope Center was open to the public and was a Catholic medical facility. The facility was actually run by the Catholic Church, not just saying it was founded by Catholic morals and support. One of the very first patients at the hospital later would testify about his horrific experience at the hospital. Right from the beginning, the hospital had frightening practices. The patient, So Young Gwan, was a young orphan who lost his parents in the Korean War and was homeless. He was forcibly taken off the streets and taken to the Hope Center, where he recalls being abused by staff and doctors daily. He was hit on the head until he had wounds and was balding on the spot where they continued to hit him. He was put into teaching programs at the welfare center, and when he wrote with his left hand, because he was left-handed, they would hit his hand repeatedly until it was swollen or broken to prevent him from using it. He was left with lifelong damage to his left hand because of this. Because of his testimony, we know now the horrors of this facility. He suffered with the trauma of his stay at the hospital for the rest of his life as he recalled seeing other people die, either natural deaths or from maltreatment. He even recalled that bodies were left to decompose in their rooms for days or longer. It was his testimony that he believed close to five people died in the facility every week. So why do so few people know about this? Well, the facility wouldn't be investigated until 60 years after its opening. Few of the surviving patients from the 60s and 80s have been found, have agreed to testify, or are still alive. So most of what we know about this hospital comes from the very few survivors that have talked about it, and the abuse that continued well into the 2010s. A former staff member who worked there for 25 years, whose name was not released in the case, said that it was standard practice and the deputy director's orders to force multiple patients into the same room, creating a space smaller than a prison cell. Patients weren't given air conditioning throughout heat waves, heating in the freezing winters, and were given horrible mattresses. Clergy members never visited the prison and refused to respond to complaints from patients or staff. 
If patients refused to accept cruel conditions and tried to leave, they'd be restrained to the point of having lasting marks on their wrists or legs. Solitary confinement was also used as a way to force compliance from patients. Former employees confirmed patients were left in solitary confinements for weeks to a month if they broke any of the rules. Staff was allowed to punish patients with slapping, hitting, or abusive speech. Volunteers were allowed at the hospital, and when they saw this treatment, they were pressured to be silent about what they heard and saw. Although unconfirmed, there were also rumors of doctors falsifying diagnoses to hold people captive as patients. But that was only a rumor surrounding this case, and it was never able to be verified. Staff also received abusive treatment and a cycle of abuse that came from the top. They worked without breaks, sometimes even overnight or double or triple shifts without breaks. Patients went neglected because of the exhaustion of the staff, and this just forced the staff to see the patients as their enemy as they became more and more overwhelmed by the workload. 129 patients, or 10% of the total number of patients, died between 2014 and mid-2016 alone. Their death certificate said something like accident or had a false cause of death related to their illness. The Daegu Hope Center's problems didn't just include abuse, though. Drug management was horrendous. Medicines that needed to be refrigerated were kept in cabinets at room temperature or even hotter in the summer months. These medicines were often kept past their expiration dates, and staff would give medications to patients with water that needed to be taken with food, which was causing gastric problems for the patients. This, alongside a poorly balanced diet of bland rice, no proteins, and often rotten fruit or stale breads, the patients were becoming extremely malnourished. The Hope Center began to have a shortage of staff and emergency rooms in the area didn't even know that the hospital existed because they'd never once received a 119 call even during medical emergencies. During emergencies, patients would be driven to a faraway hospital owned by the same Catholic board instead of visiting the emergency room that was only minutes away from them, leading to multiple patients dying on the trip there. While all of this was happening in the facility behind closed doors of the vice president Gim's office, a former employee of 25 years testified that the vice president had manipulated and abused a patient named Miss Saul. In 1998, Vice President Gim hired a woman who had been a patient at the hospital for 10 years for her cerebral palsy with intellectual disabilities. The woman was hired to do chores for the vice president's family and often went between the facility and the vice president president's house. Other patients were not even allowed to leave the facility willingly, so it was odd for Miss Saul to go back and forth between the house and the hospital. After some time, Miss Saul was asked to begin looking after the vice president's young son. Miss Saul was a very kind person to those who had met her, but she had the mental age of an elementary student, according to her psychiatrist. It would be irresponsible to ask her to care for a young child. Those who found out about the situation were told to stay quiet about it, and these threats worked because from 1998, 2010, nobody knew what happened at the vice president's house. But when an employee reported the situation in 2010, everyone was shocked to hear that when the vice president's son was still young, he would tell Ms. Saw to bathe his son, which wasn't the oddest request for a nanny, but then the request became more and more disturbing. He would force Ms. Saw to wash the boy's private parts very thoroughly as he watched. Later, he would ask Ms. Saw to watch TV with his son undressed. Then he would ask Ms. Saw to sexually abuse his son while the boy was distracted with TV. The employee who reported the situation said that Miss Saw expressed her refusal but was forced to by Mr. Kim. 
Miss Saw complained about being stressed, exhausted, and having pain in her body from the physical cleaning work she was made to do. Remember, she didn't have cerebral palsy, which limited her physical ability. To this day, the family denies the claims, but admits that they did hire Miss Saw to work as a maid. Miss Saw passed away the following year under the hospital's care. Miss Saw's death was not investigated, but another patient that same year died under suspicious circumstances. A patient in 2011 began receiving treatment for a common cold. According to his medical records, within one week, his illness took a drastic turn for the worse, and he developed sepsis. He was transferred to the facility's partner hospital, the one that was farther away that they took the emergency patients. This was not an intensive care facility, which someone with sepsis would definitely need. The staff referred to the patient is having no hope for survival, even prior to the worsening of his infection. At the point of them declaring that he wouldn't survive, medical professionals point out that his rate of survival was actually pretty good if he had received proper emergency care. However, despite a nurse's protest to move him to an actual intensive care hospital, the senior executive ordered the patient be moved back to the original Hope Center. There, the patient passed away just a week after his first symptoms developed of pneumonia and respiratory failure. This hospital's reputation makes Gunziam's rumors and stories sound like a fairy tale. Locals heard screams and crying throughout all the day coming from this facility. They heard children and adults screaming and shouting for help. All of this would be covered up when audits of the facility happened, and employees said that documents were ordered to be shredded if anyone was coming to the facility. The hospital was overseen by the Catholic Diocese of Daegu, and the Daegu Hope Center was led by Father Kuno, Father Antonio, and Father Abel, all Korean men with Catholic names. After this came to the press and public, they issued an apology that they had not taken care of the disabled and vulnerable people within their care. They admitted that 102 people died within the last two years of the care and that the people had heard screams from the facility. But essentially, they said that it's normal for people with mental disabilities to scream and that the deaths were all natural. Dismissing the genuine fear of the screams heard, and then they continued to say that the problems within the hospital were due to the employees being bad and not the church or the leadership. They even ignored accusations of there being hundreds of thousands of dollars missing in embezzlement. The Archdiocese of Daegu would also issue a general apology, but he would take the blame for the hospital's problems and he would end up being sentenced to three years in prison for the embezzlement. The director of the hospital would only be sentenced to one year for illegal confinement of the patients. Other employees in charge were sentenced to sentences less than a year or just minor probation time. No real justice would be served for the hundreds or more patients that died in the abusive care of this hospital. The hospital facility is actually still in operation to this day, but the name has changed to the Hope Village. They have three buildings now, a homeless rehabilitation facility, a nursing home for elderly homeless people, and a mental health facility. They have been closely monitored and since have not had any issues. Since then, multiple head priests and archdiocese members have been convicted of other crimes related to the hospital, leading people to criticize the Catholic Church in Korea. At the end of the investigation, they found that 309 people had died suspiciously in the last six years of its operating. That's 27% of all residents, or about 47 people a year. And considering that this was after they started investigating hospitals, there were probably many more prior to this. The young boy who was forced there when it was opened in 1958 wasn't wrong. He probably did see people die every week. The buildings now are surrounded by walls and trees, which makes it hard for onlookers to see in. But certainly, it isn't the horror story it was years ago. 
A facility such as this, with trauma, pain, and death, should never be forgotten and should be learned from. We make scary stories from decaying buildings such as Gonjam, which had, as far as we know, great staff and provided quality care to their patients. We don't need to create our own ghost stories, when the true reality of our world is much, much more terrifying. I hope you enjoyed today's episode topic. If you'd like to vote on future episode topics, please join Korean True Crime on Patreon today. There are no tiers, so all patrons gain access to everything. And today's episode has a bonus content about Korean ghost doctors. Thank you for listening to Korean True Crime. If you'd like to hear more, follow the show wherever you listen and be sure to leave a review. If you'd like to send me feedback, find me on all social media sites at Korean True Crime. See you next time.